Welcome to Here for Her Health, where we are building a better, healthier everyday for women. Brought to you by Organon. Welcome back to Organon's Here for Her Health, where we're building a better and healthier everyday for every woman. I'm Wendy Lund. On today's show, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Sharice Chambers, also known as the Period Doctor. She's an OBGYN with fellowship training in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Dr. Chambers and I participated in the Female Leads LinkedIn Live event on breaking the stigma around women's health issues from menstruation to menopause. So I'm thrilled to reunite and have her as a guest today. So Dr. Chambers, you have such a unique specialty in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Tell us what inspired you to focus on this demographic. Yeah, such a great question. So I have always loved teenage patients and I don't know why exactly. I remember being a medical student and I decided that I wanted to do OBGYN. And so I was doing some final rotations and I decided to do adolescent medicine. On that rotation, I learned so much. No one will challenge you like an adolescent. The way in which they approach life and their bodies and the opportunity for education and advocacy is so huge. And it really just spoke to me. It felt like something that I could do for the rest of my life. And so that's how I ended up in my specialty. Thank you, Dr. Chambers. You are probably such an incredible force with these teenagers and these young women. And I'm sure they're so dependent on you, not only as a doctor, but also as many ways a mentor, as many women look to their physician through their life as such an important part of their life. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things you've created. And one of the things we were looking at is the period doctor platform, which is such a great resource to debunk the myths and misconceptions and the misunderstood topics in women's health. And of course, in the age bracket you're working with, we know there are so many of these myths and misconceptions, and I'm sure you do an incredible job helping them. So tell us about Why is there such an incredibly large unmet need for medically accurate women's health information today? I really love that question because it's really, it's twofold. There's so many pieces here. I like to think that it has a lot to do with just our society and it just being quite patriarchal in nature. When men are at the forefront of the conversations and guiding the topics and saying what is a value and what is not, a lot of the time women's health and women's needs are kind of pushed back. They take a back seat to those other needs. And you can see that across policies in a number of places. And also I think it has to do with generational kind of norms and what's been set by the generations ahead of us. Women were taught to kind of minimize these things, minimize the period, minimize your bodies changes, puberty, menopause. Don't talk about those things. Just navigate them with as little information as possible, as gracefully as possible, and make it not an inconvenience to anyone around you. And that's how you are the supreme woman. And I think that's very wrong. And so I'm really working quite strongly to disrupt that notion. A lot of my focus is, of course, for representation and mentorship and advocacy, but ultimately to disrupt that generational cycle of misconceptions and things that tell us that women's health is not an important topic to discuss. Yeah, I love that. And I love the fact that you're focusing on maximizing their voice and maximizing the information, which is so incredibly important as we want to start at an early age to unmute her. And so that leads to my next topic to talk about, which is you must have a lot of different questions and parents and the patients that you have coming in and asking all kinds of questions. Tell me a little bit about what are some of the things they ask about, things that would be of interest to the people listening today that they may want to hear some of those answers. Sure. A lot of the questions I get are triggered by 
social media. So many things are on TikTok, they said. <laughs> and whenever I know, whenever it's starting with that, I'm like, oh dear God, what have they seen? People said on TikTok, they say, if you get in water, if you get in a pool, your period stops. I'm like, oh, actually, no, that's not true. Why? And so I like to kind of turn that around, you know, why would that even happen? What about water would make your body stop doing this normal process, you know? And so some of those questions are just kind of fun little myths. And then there are certain things that are a little bit more dangerous. Like on TikTok, it says that if you use a tampon, you lose your virginity or something as crazy and wild as that. It's like, okay, so no, that's not the case. And you have girls that are super athletic, you know, out here swimming and, and playing rugby and being on all of these teams, feeling like they can't use a tampon because of some myth and some fear. And so a lot of what I try to kind of push in these conversations is one, making a safe space to ask these questions. There are no dumb questions, but I want to make sure that people are leading with facts over fear. And that's the biggest thing. I find it to be so liberating when you can have these cool conversations and ask these questions with your doctor and then leave with the freedom to make the right choice that's best for you. I love that. The facts over fear. Yeah. And that is so true, not just among the age that you're dealing with and the parents, but so many different women across the world are dealing with this fear over fact issue, right? Which we have to overcome. And that leads me to the next thing I want to talk about, which is period apology, which all of us in our lifetime think about, you know, how you're apologizing for having your period in various ways, whether it's at home or whether it's in the workplace or whether it's just out with friends, right? Oh, you know, you mm -hmm. have, we all have those lines and those sayings about apologizing for our periods and, and the ways we may be feeling or acting or being. So this is a huge part of our culture. It's been taught to us by many different people around us, maybe re-impressed by family members that kind of continue to reinforce some of these issues, especially around the secrecy that's encouraged when it comes to talking about menstruation and periods. So tell us how you're kind of bridging that gap, that generational gap, and kind of creating a new generation in the process when it comes to talking about this. Yeah. So I think that I'm kind of lucky in the sense of the age of social media, where these conversations are pushed to the forefront and everyone has a voice and everyone has a platform to varying degrees, but we have a place to talk about it because of my platform. It kind of has created a community where folks are talking to each other in the comments. You know, I'll post something about, oh, this is what your period is or, or something about that. And I mean, the comments are nuts. People are giving advice and I, I told my daughter this, it is absolutely beautiful to see that type of community kind of take place. The issue is we don't talk about these things because we often believe that there is no change there. There is no opportunity for improvement. And so I think a lot of the apologies that we were taught to kind of give around our periods were from our mothers and our grandmothers believing that this was something that you needed to deal with by yourself in silo. And so if someone were introduced to your period or affected by your period, it was your burden to apologize to them. And now we realize that periods are normal. If we bring it into the forefront, we remove the apology piece, we can create community and community creates sisterhood and it can create really confidence and education and opportunities for involvement. And even just reaching across the board and saying, this is what I do for my daughter. And this is what I do in this scenario. And that really gives us a lot of more power. You keep talking about a lot of the same themes running through this, talking mm -hmm. about these things, maximizing the conversation, unmuting her, creating community where people can come together and talk about this. And you're playing sort of that central role of being almost like a conductor where you can help get the right information out. And I mean, to your point, social media just plays such a huge role. And I'm sure it plays a really large role as we have younger and younger people 
mm-hmm. tapping into social media and the amount of social media is huge. And then the amount of information on social media is shorter and shorter and shorter, right? So that makes your job harder and harder and harder. It does. <laughs> As these young women or young girls are starting their periods, you know, how do you empower them to raise their voices with their parents and health professionals and others in their lives Asking those tough questions to ask, those sensitive issues, sometimes very embarrassing to them, even embarrassing for the people they're asking, right? Who don't really want to be asked these questions. And how can they just get that care and that sort of hug and that day-to-day sort of love around this that they deserve? Yeah. So a big part of just being a physician to this demographic, and it's mostly adolescent menstruators, is not only just unmuting them, but calling them to the stage and giving them the microphone, right? The unmuting suggests that you can speak, but it doesn't mean that I'm listening. It doesn't mean that you have my full attention. It doesn't mean that I respect your words. When you create that stage where this is your visit, and that's kind of how I started off, like, hey, you know, this is your visit. Everything that happens today is to help you. And so I need you to be, I mean, not only just a participant, but an active participant in this. I need you to tell me what bothers you, what you want to change, what you want to get from this. And then I can meet you there. And so you see their eyes kind of light up like, oh, like I can talk about these things. Not only can I talk about, but I have to talk about, and then change can occur. I think that's how you unmute this. That's how you kind of call people in and let them know that there is space for this conversation and there's space to improve your day-to-day activities. And so by creating that, you also tell the parent, like, it's okay to talk about this. And then you tell the child, you know, this is what you should be telling your mom. If your period lasts longer than seven days, tell your mom, your mom will tell me. And that's me kind of giving them a call to action. She's going to tell you if it's longer than seven days and you better tell me because this is a problem. And then I educate them on why it matters, what the negative outcomes are, what the adverse events can be. And so everyone is brought to the table. We're on the same page. And when you create that community and that collaboration, you get a much better outcome. You're bringing back a lot of memories for me of some of the early days of when I first got my period and I was ashamed and I was embarrassed to kind of talk about this, obviously many, many years ago. And so when my daughter got her period for the first time, I remember I really wanted to overcome a lot of that nervousness and embarrassment and help protect her in many ways from the things that I was never protected from in my early days in terms of sort of how to like be able to talk about it, but also how to just like make sure you have everything to equip yourself the right way to kind of manage month by month. And so I think we've made some tremendous gains, right? Because I think the world that I grew up in when I first got my period is very different. And now we have support like you to help all these young women. But, you know, there are definitely areas where reproductive health have some gaps. And just to ask you a question of where do you see for your career, you've been through med school, you've seen a lot so far. You come from a family of physicians as well. In what areas of reproductive health do you feel like we've had the greatest advancement and where do you still see the gaps? There's really so much opportunity to advance when it comes to reproductive health. The pace by which we have been advancing is very slow. And that's kind of the nature of medicine in general and then policies, because a lot of that drives our reproductive health. I want to see more options for contraception. I want to see more options for menstrual care. I want to see more medications to help with cramping. I want to see schools removing those limitations for girls to go to the restroom. I want to see free period products in every restroom. You don't have to pay for toilet paper because everyone expects you to use the restroom. They expect you to urinate or have a bowel movement or whatever your normal body does. And so there should be an expectation for the same thing for menstruators. 
Those are the things that I want to see from a career standpoint for myself. I just want to be a part of that. I want to be involved and in that conversation because that's where my heart is happy. And I feel like the platform that I have, which I'm so grateful for, and the credentials I have allow me to kind of be able to navigate that space and say, no, this is what's true. This is what's not. She deserves to speak. This makes sense. You know, and so it gives me a little bit of leverage it. And I want to be able to leverage my experience and my platform to make a change to make things better for our administrators in the future. So you caught me in a place that I'm very vulnerable with a lot of thoughts here. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to kind of sidebar for a second with you on this. So I took my son off on vacation during COVID. We didn't get a lot of time to be together and mm-hmm. he's in his twenties and he wanted to go to a big major tourist attraction, which we did. And I went in the bathroom and I was like kind of in the bathroom, wanted to get out as a public bathroom. And I saw the machine, that dreaded machine when you mm-hmm. get period and you're not expecting it and like fumbling for your money and putting your money in and getting your tampon. And they were charging 50 cents for tampons. And I just saw red, right? I was like, in this day and age, are they still charging for tampons in public bathrooms? And aren't we at a place in time? Like when you go into your office, they're giving things away, like right there in the bathroom and women can come and take. And now people who probably are fumbling for that money or maybe have less money or more vulnerable are searching their pocketbooks for money to basically deal with a stressful moment to begin with, right? Because getting your period when you're not aware you're maybe getting it or something happens that you need to change it, whatever. So I just went in my head thinking there has to be a drive to get companies, Mm -hmm. meaning not employers as much, but when you go to public places to remove those machines and find a way to turn this thing, don't have to put money in and out comes a tampon. And I know there's a lot of issues around that, but for me, it's almost like symbolic, right? Right. It just makes sense. Sort of like my hashtag free the tampon. So I would just love to hear like, what would it take to do that? Do you think that's possible in our day and age? Oh, absolutely. I think that's 100% possible. And part of what I want to do in this space is bring those things to the forefront, like how it affects us as someone who's walking into a public restroom, knowing what it feels like to be starting your period in an unexpected fashion, to have only 50 cents. Nobody even carries cash anymore. You have 50 cents. It must be two quarters between you and protection from bleeding through your pantsuit is absurd. That's just the most absurd thing. And there's no question at all around the need to provide soap and paper towels or some way to dry your hands and toilet paper. None of that is even considered is considered to just be a normal expense. That should be the same for menstrual products. Because if you want to have an environment with your employees can succeed, that needs to be for all employees, especially your menstruators. And most of the folks, half of them at least, between the ages of 12 and 50, are going to be likely menstruating at some point. So they need to be supported through that. And it's not that they're at a disadvantage, but you're supposed to actually create an environment where everyone can succeed. And as an employer, as a large business, you should care about that. Moreover, I'm sure it's some tax deductible thing. It sounds like some great, you know, crazy cause. It's not understood. You can easily write this in if you prioritize it. And that is the issue. It is people not prioritizing it. The folks who are able to make these decisions and not prioritizing menstrual products and menstrual health. Well, Dr. Chambers, I think we found our crusade. (laughs) We're going to go out there and we are going to free the tampon from every box and every public space. So stay tuned. I'm coming back to you. Hopefully others who are (laughs) part of this or listening will want to take part. So let's kind of pivot back to you and the fact that you practice in a relatively rural community in Alabama. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about adolescents in rural communities. And I'm sure they have 
very similar needs to Mm -hmm. every girl across the world, but there are probably some unique needs as well. And can you tell us a little bit more? I mean, you grew up there, you've been practicing there, your family's there. You're certainly putting special attention on these young girls. Tell us more about what it's like to practice medicine and be a part of helping all these young teenagers in rural parts of the United States. Yeah. So I find the rural areas to be so fun to me. I did grow up here. I grew up in Phoenix City, Alabama. My office is in Columbus, Georgia, but it's right on the state line. And so I get a lot of folks from Alabama and a lot of folks from Georgia. And so what you find is, one, people are just used to not being able to reach providers that are subspecialists. They're so used to it that they're shocked. (laughs) They're like, I can't believe that I could come just here and find a subspecialist like this. I'm so happy that you're here. That's a big part of it. And it has a lot to do with the nature of our medical systems to have all of our subspecialists in one area, in our Atlantas, in our Birmingham's, whatever the biggest city is, that's where everyone is. And so you must drive to that city and that part of town to get there. And so what that looks like is mothers and fathers and guardians taking off full days or half days of work, kids missing school, people being stressed out by traffic and parking, all of these factors that don't necessarily need to be a part of this and really serve to be a barrier. Another piece of it is just kind of really navigating some misconceptions. And it's not that these people don't have social media and all these other things. There's some beliefs that are kind of stronger held in certain areas where there may be not as much of a progressive mindset. So there's a lot of fighting those misconceptions and those myths that are generationally kind of passed down. And you have to do that with love. And so I'm able to do that as someone who's from the community, not someone who's an outsider that's judging and saying, oh, you guys just don't get it. I get it. I was raised here. I fully understand. But we have the power to liberate ourselves from a lot of these myths and misconceptions. What I find is that when parents are involved in the conversation, we're able to really talk through it. They're just leading with fear anyway. They just want what's best for their child and they feel relieved when they have greater information and it's coming from a trusted source. And so I lead kind of similarly as I would in any other type of more urban or populated area, but just with a little bit more greater knowledge of maybe some of the misconceptions and myths that they might be carrying with them. Sounds like there's a little bit more TLC injected there. Labor of love, no pun intended. (laughs) So I'll have one last question for you, which is you are part of something wonderful. You're a part of this new wave of online gynecologists who are empowering and educating young women. And you're probably empowering and educating many more than just young women. I'm sure, you know, women as they go through their life cycle, their reproductive life cycles as well. And talk to us a little bit about why an online presence is so important for teaching young women where they're at versus having them come to you. Yeah. So I remember being in fellowship and just loving the work I was doing because it was so much education. And I would have so many mother-daughter or grandmother-daughter pairs saying, gosh, why didn't anyone ever tell me this? No one has ever said this before. And so I realized then that I needed to reach a larger audience and that if I scheduled patients every 30 minutes for the rest of my life, I would never reach as many people as I could potentially reach if I leveraged social media. So that's what triggered me to start my social media page. And what I believe social media allows us to do is one, reach a ton of folks in a short amount of time, but it also allows folks to reach you in the comfort of their home. They don't necessarily have to subscribe. They don't have to comment. They don't have to follow, but they can get this information in a place that allows them to be free of judgment and to just kind of bring it in. They can watch it one time, revisit it, save it, watch it again, share it. It really allows for so much more flexibility in the learning kind of environment. And so I like it also because it it allows them to see that I'm a human being. 
doing. I'm not just some doctor that just gives you orders from across the other side of the exam table. I'm someone who's constantly caring about this, not just you know, Monday through Thursday, eight to five, but this is who I am as a person. And these conversations are important. They're not just to be locked into the exam room. When you leave the exam room, you're still living this life and navigating these spaces and we can still talk about it. And I can create that community because of social media. And so there's so many reasons why an online presence is important. And I didn't even mention the pandemic where people couldn't come into my office, you know? And so, so it really allows us to remove so many of those barriers, socioeconomic barriers, barriers of distance, barriers of time. And you just create a community that people can tap into as they wish. And then I think you get more folks in, you get more folks into the conversation because they don't feel so much pressure. It's not, they have to make an appointment and go through their insurance and drive and all this stuff. They can do it right from the comfort of their homes. All right. A couple more questions, a little bit off of different subjects. Polycystic ovary syndrome is one of the most common endocrine disorders in women. And what words of encouragement would you give for a woman dealing with suffering from PCOS? So I get a lot of questions about PCOS. I realize that that's because it's so common. So one in 10 women of reproductive age will have a diagnosis of PCOS. And what it is, it's characterized by hormonal dysregulation. And there's a number of symptoms and signs that come with that. And it affects people differently. So it's very complex. And that's the nature of kind of syndromes that they don't have to look exactly the same in every single person. I think that someone who is dealing with PCOS needs to know that one, this is something that we can manage and you can manage it together. It does require some effort on their part and definitely effort on my part, but we're a team and we're a team in a way that we can navigate the metabolic issues, the way it affects you mentally and emotionally and even physically. And I like to let them know that this is something that I'm willing to do with you as long as you need me, because this is a lifelong diagnosis. And because you're giving a lifelong diagnosis, folks really feel kind of overwhelmed by that. But the land of PCOS kind of support groups and knowledge is really growing. It's complex and it drives us nuts and we can't just fix it. There is no magic medication or anything like that. And it doesn't always look the same. But as long as you have a partner in your doctor, a partner in your family members, you can and will succeed. That's great. And so let's pivot over to maternal health, whole different subject, right? And the structural racism in maternal health among Black women continues to be one of the toughest challenges our country faces when it comes to the public health of this country. And tell us a little bit what mm -hmm. you see sort of day to day to day, right? What are some of the realities that you see? What are some of the underreported statistics related to racism in maternal care that you want to just make sure people hear and to broaden the discussion? I think some of the realities I see, it can be from my peers. I'm in my mid thirties. And so a lot of my peers are entering into starting families or getting pregnant and trying to conceive. And there are women who are so incredibly educated and highly successful who are terrified of pregnancy. And they're terrified because so much of the narrative has shown all of the negative outcomes. And that makes sense. And those need to be brought to light in order to affect change. But you also find that people are like, what can I do? And it's hard because I don't want the onus to be on that person, on that patient, to have to take on the burden to fight for their lives. But 
We must. And so what I find is most helpful is to start finding those tools where you can say, hey, this is what you can control. You can control who your provider is. You can do a preconception visit. You can ask your provider, what do you feel about Black maternal health? And see if they acknowledge it, understand it, and if they have a reasonable response. And you can make those changes and assert, I don't feel comfortable and advocate for yourself in a number of settings. And so those are the things that I like to push, the advocacy, the importance of asserting yourself and getting the right provider, the things that we can change, but it is not at all to suggest that the onus is on the patient to fight for their lives, to make sure that they survive. It is a system that needs to be reworked. And so I don't know exactly how that works and what the solution is, but I'll tell you that part of it is having greater diversity and inclusion in our providers and in the way that we are trained. But you cannot suggest again that bringing in doctors that are black and brown fixes the problem. Everyone needs to do better. Everyone needs to acknowledge their biases and everyone needs to get culturally sensitive when it comes to their training and their approach to care. And I believe that's how we improve those outcomes. Thank you. That just such an inspirational way to end the show left me on such kind of a kickback to the days where it all began, but also thinking about this new generation and how people like yourself are making such a difference for these women and the call to action to your peers and to embrace diversity within your peer set is so incredibly important for the future of our patients. So thank you so much for being here today. More to come as we start our new crusade together. And I look forward to where we can take it. Thank you for having me. I want to give another huge thanks to my friend, Dr. Sharice Chambers, for coming on the show and talking with us about how she's using her professional practice to educate young women about menstruation and fight back against stigma. Remember to leave a review if you enjoyed the show so we can get this important information to even more women everywhere. I'm Wendy Lund, and thank you all for listening to Organon's Here for Her Health, building a better and healthier every day for every woman.